And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. It's Straight Outta Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. On this episode, a win, a glorious, gritty win. Inevitability, Sam Kerr pinches a point at the Emirates. And as Mikhailo Mudrik checks in, we learn how and why Chelsea sealed the deal for the sought-after Ukrainian. A joyous celebration of a brilliant Chelsea weekend then. Enjoy it while it lasts. This is Straight Outta Cobham. What a weekend then, a derby win, a point pinched in North London and taking the Mikhailo out of Arsenal. Here to bask in the glory of it with me. Ah, Simon Johnson. That was the first time I've seen Chelsea win in the flesh since AC Milan away in October. Happy New Year. (laughs) Finally, a win in 2023. Liam Toomey's also here to celebrate it. How are you doing, Liam? Kai's back, baby. (laughs) I'm good. He never doubted it. He never doubted it. All right, let's start today with that most welcome win at Stamford Bridge. Gallagher, Ziyech, 2v1 on that side. Ziyech swings it in. Havertz is there! Fine header! And Chelsea take the lead. Relieved, um, emotional. We'll have bigger moments and bigger days. But uh, in the context of where we've been at, I think it's, uh, it's a positive day for us. Chelsea won Crystal Palace nil then. Kai Havertz second half header enough to earn the Blues their first win of the year and then a run of three straight defeats. Simon and I were both on hand for this one. Simon, I want to start before we get to the game with the the tributes to Gianluca Vialli, which were paid pre-match because they were really lovely. Yeah, I thought they they absolutely nailed it. I was a little bit concerned as time was ticking um, because fans were told to get to their seats by uh, 20 minutes before kickoff and kickoff was approaching you know there, there was didn't seem to be much sort of direction of what exactly was going to take place you saw the old boys the former players starting to gather in the in the Chelsea press room um I had a very brief chat with Chris Sutton and I I actually said to the guys I said uh, have you brought your boots because uh, you might need might need to play if there's another injury. not you Chris <laughs> well no that's it he actually said oh no one wants to see me out there <laughs> so I thought it was a nice bit of self-deprecating humor loved it but um but no the, the club absolutely nailed it the, the first of all the players came out to warm up black shirts Viali's name number nine on the back of course the big flags at both ends of the ground were unveiled the players came out obviously for the for the usual pre-match warm-up uh, uh, lineup, sorry, and then the then the old boys came out and they all got in the centre circle and and of course there was that great video played which I I thought really hit the tone. Was that Graham Lasso doing the narration on that? Sounded like to me. I've yet to clarify it, but I thought it sounded like Scott Minto, <laughs> but I may be wrong. But I was standing next to veteran employees of the club, Brian Teresa. And the loss of Viali, I think, has hit them really hard. I spoke to Teresa, I know there's probably a lot of people listening who don't know Teresa, but she knows more about Chelsea than 
than most. She's worked for the club for 40, 50 years. And I, I spoke to her briefly beforehand and, and, and she sort of was saying what an awful, awful day it was for her to sort of have this goodbye. But I think I think the club really, really nailed it. And, and of course, the, the tributes continued. I mean, Viali's name was sung a lot through the game, including just after Havertz's header. It, it really felt like it was the fitting tribute as well for the team to, okay, they weren't great, but to win the game. And, and uh, as I said, I think I think it was all about Viali and, and the club nailed it. Yeah, and Havertz spoke about that after the game too. Um, Liam, as, as Simon says, it's not like it was a vintage performance, but in a way it was everything it needed to be, wasn't it? It was a win, it was a clean sheet, it was gritty, it, it, it was getting the job done and just stopping the rot. That was That was all that mattered really. They needed a response. They needed three points. They needed something to give supporters some reason to hope heading to to Liverpool next weekend. And you know, while I think there were there there were some positives from the from the Fulham game before it all went awry, and many of them you know revolving around João Felix and the way he performed, that was ultimately another another depressing experience that kind of intensified the gloom around the club so they they desperately needed something like this and I think you know it would have I think it would have sullied the tributes to Viali a little bit it would have undercut the mood I think a lot of the fans were were in the mood to get behind the team because they wanted that they wanted the result to be a tribute to Viali not just the whole day um, and so it was a positive that the the team could actually deliver on that despite the fact that they did have a few hairy moments you could see throughout the game that Palace felt like they were very capable of getting something. Um, they came to Stamford Bridge with a lot of belief and they had some dangerous moments. But Kepa broadly played well. I thought he um, he generally redeemed himself from the mistake he made for the Fulham winner. thought Badia Shield had a pretty solid debut, all things considered, and could be in a good position to get a run of games now, given the way Koulibaly's played. And, uh, you know, I, I joked at the start, Havertz is back. He could, he should have had a hat trick um, from that game. All three three golden headed chances, but he managed to put one of them away. And I think there there were signs from last week that you know with players around him that are confident and creative, Havertz is one of those players that can lift his level if others are playing better around him. And so maybe maybe if if confidence increases incrementally, we'll see a little bit more at that end of the pitch as well. So Liam mentions Badia Shield there, Simon. He's the um, subject of your post-match piece and uh, it, almost ideal circumstances for a debut in a lot of ways, wasn't it? Because the focus wasn't particularly on him. You know, with the Mudrick news, with the Viali tributes, he, he could slip under the radar a little bit. Obviously, he doesn't do that if he has a bad game. The, the spotlight turns on him, but he, he played pretty well. Yeah, I mean, and that's basically the point I made is that, it, although I flipped it as in, it was going to be hard for him to be noticed um, because everyone's focus was elsewhere. I just want to say about the club nailing it, I'm not sure they nailed... I know they're very excited about Mudrick, but I'm not sure they nailed that. I just thought the day should have been about Viali. Also announcing it midway through the first half was very odd. I, I can't remember Chelsea ever doing that before. You'd sort of think to maximise the, the sort of the impact of this big signing, you, you would do it certainly outside of a match. Um, Chelsea fans were watching the game and it's sort of, he's signing a guy for 100 million euros, you know. 
But back to Badishil. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew from the outset, the moment he was in the line, I thought, right, I'm going to watch this guy. Um, must admit, I've never watched him for for Monaco and Aliyam did a great piece um talking about his his strengths which is well worth another read because it kind of it kind of sums up the kind of player he is but I thought he's very silky smooth in possession it was very noticeable within a few minutes he he played this delightful ball into Havertz it's been something that's been missing from Chelsea's play from the back you know someone that's I know Silva can do it Koulibaly's been very hit and miss Chalabur at the moment his form's a bit 50-50 so he, he did bring he did bring that sort of nice smooth billet on the ball but he's got pace and what what really stood out for me was the last few minutes when Chelsea were hanging on it felt like Manchester United at home all over again when they conceded that last minute equaliser at the back post lost the ball in the air if you remember and he won three big headers and I just thought, yeah, that's exactly what this, this backline leads. Now, of course, that leads to a decision to make ahead of Liverpool. I'm sure the Chelsea fans would rather see Badishil play instead of Koulibaly. Of course, Badishil is, you know, it's one thing playing at home against Crystal Palace. It's another, okay, they're in terrible form, but it's another going to Anfield. So you could tell when I asked Graham Potter that he was kind of like, look, he's raw, he's still going to have some adapting to do. But you could understand a bit more why they signed this guy although it is only just one game. The other thing I think Buddy Shield's performance underlined was the decision Chelsea are going to have coming down the line, looking towards next season now, because you've got Levi Colwell just breaking through at Brighton, playing superbly, exactly the same profile of defender as, as Buddy Shield, an elegant, natural left-footed, left-sided centre-back. You can't really imagine both of them in the same back line unless it's maybe a back three. And as David Ornstein reported in his, his column today, Colwell's already under England consideration and he's not even played a minute for Chelsea yet. So that's the one aspect in which you can maybe question the signing of Badia Shiel. I think the, the consensus is he's a very talented, very promising young player and he should have, he should have a good career at Chelsea. But it, it's a bit interesting that they've done this deal and given him such a long contract when they have Colwell as well. Uh, yeah, just before you jump in, Simon, producer Lucy with the big scoop here. Apparently Colwell was in the director's box at Stamford Bridge watching on. He yesterday. was, wasn't he? Yeah, with Midrick. Huh, I didn't know that. That's um, There were pictures. That's significant, I think, because, yeah, what, all I just wanted to add to, to what Liam said, and he's, he's right, of course, you know, I was sitting there going, no, he's did a great impression of Levi Colwell here. Um, but I did I did write last week in part of David Ornstein's column that from what I'm told, he is part of the club's long-term plans. But as Liam rightly flags, it's hard to see them in the same team. But at the same time, the plan is to have four young centre-backs. That's the long-term plan. As, as, as heartbreaking as it may sound, Thiago Silva is going to have to stop playing for Chelsea at some point. Although the way he's playing, you think he just doesn't seem, it seems no end in sight, does it? I mean, it was, it was a toss up between him and Kepa for man of the match. I don't know whether you agreed, Matt, but I thought those two. I would say Conor Gallagher might have something to say about that uh, for his mm. relentless energy, particularly in the first half. But yeah, I mean, Thiago Silva, 
Kepa made the three great saves, but the thing with Thiago Silva was he was marshalling a defence which included a debutant, an 18-year-old, and a centre-half playing at right-back. So I think even taking out of consideration his own saves, he's pretty good. And uh, imagine if Chelsea had signed him 10 years ago, but let's just be grateful that that we've been able to watch him um, for the time that we have. Absolutely outstanding. Uh, Patrick Vieira. Liam had a little moan up afterwards saying that the refereeing decisions didn't go their way. Was he not watching uh, all the times that Czech Decore made pretty serious fouls after he'd been booked? That, that sounded a bit like sour grapes as much as anything else from the Palace manager. Yeah, manager who's lost a game in angry at official shock. Um, it, I, uh, yeah, I didn't really see it. I didn't. It's usually pretty obvious when a refereeing performance is skewed egregiously towards one team or another that it didn't look that way to me at all. I was just going to follow up on the Gallagher point to, to, to ask what, what people felt seeing, um, seeing Mark Gray push him for, for time wasting towards the end. Cobham on Cobham violence. These, these young lads all grown up. It was funny because it happened just moments after um, our friend Sam Parkin was on co-commentary with me for Chelsea TV and we'd just been talking about, I'll really be enjoying this, playing against his old friends, you know, knowing all about them. And, oh, no, one of them's pushed into the floor. Maybe not. No, it was, it was after that, wasn't it? It was when they're all sort of, there's about six of them all and manhandling off of the pitch. And, and I said, oh, how soon they forget. Not only what Gallagher did for them last season, but... By all accounts, and I, I I haven't heard this, maybe Liam knows a bit better than me, but that uh, Palace want him back again. And it's sort of like, well, that's not really going to help matters. <laughs> He's done his initiation already for when he signed. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, that was a much needed win for Chelsea. I think we can all agree uh, they will go to Liverpool on Saturday in their next game. So a full week for Graham Potter to work on the training pitch, which will be beneficial. I think if you'd said at the halfway point of the season that Chelsea and Liverpool would be level on points, most Chelsea fans would have taken that, uh, albeit without looking at the Premier League table. Uh, Well, the Blues shocked the world of football transfers this weekend by snaffling Mikhailo Mudrik from under the noses of Arsenal. We'll tell you how and why they did it next. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Right, be honest with me, listener. Had you heard of Mikhailo Mudrik six months ago? I don't believe you. Anyway, he's a Chelsea player now, and if he sees out his contracts, it'll still be one well into the next decade. The 22-year-old has inked an eight-and-a-half-year deal for a reported £60 million and a further £27 million in add-ons, depending on how he gets on. Joining us to tell us more about how this deal came about is the Athletics' Adam Crafton, who's been tracking this story. Um, Adam, that was a, a pretty whirlwind weekend. Uh, all of a sudden, he went from being destined for Arsenal to, to being paraded on the pitch at Stamford Bridge at 
at half time. Did this catch you unawares as it did everybody else? I think so. I mean, th- there was definitely, you know, we were getting messages during the week that Chelsea weren't out of this, even as sort of people were saying, you know, Arsenal are getting closer, Arsenal are getting closer. The, the messages from Shakhtar were always, we think Chelsea are going to come. We don't know how it will end up, but we think Chelsea are still very much in this discussion. And then obviously it, it all just snowballed between Friday and Saturday, where kind of around midnight on Saturday, co-owner Begdad Bali and director of global talent and transfers, Paul Winstanley, get on kind of this red-eye flight at about midnight Saturday, get into Belek in Antalya in Turkey, for 8, 9 a.m., go straight to the hotel, have several hours of meetings with Shakhtar's sporting director, Dario Serna, chief executive, Sergei Palkin, and then once everything, and also obviously Mikado Mudrik himself and a representative. And then once all that's sorted out, there's a kind of a confirmatory call between co-owner Begdad Bali and the Shakhtar president, Rina Akhmetov. And as Simon reported around, it was about 5, 5 p.m., 6 p.m. on Saturday evening, Chelsea have agreed to pay 70 million euros as a fixed fee and a first, further 30 million in add-ons. So Shakhtar went into this window saying we value this player at 100 million euros and that's kind of exactly what they've got out of it. My next question is how did they make the deal happen? But I feel like the answer is fairly simple in that they offered the club and the player more money than Arsenal were going to. Is it as basic as that? A little bit more complex. I think the final offers from both clubs were pretty similar in terms of the round number. Where there was a difference was Chelsea were offering to do the the fixed fee, the speed of those payments, those instalments, was significantly quicker than Arsenal. And that was a big deal for Shakhtar, obviously, you know, when you bear in mind that Shakhtar at the moment, obviously playing in a situation where there's no fans in stadiums because of the war, commercial income down, not sure if they'll get Champions League next season. So they obviously have a need to, to bring money in as soon as possible. They've also just lost a 50 million euro legal battle with FIFA as well. So that became a very, very big factor in the negotiations, basically how quickly can we get this money and Chelsea could do that quicker than Arsenal. But, you know, Arsenal saying things like, oh, we didn't want to get into a bidding war. Well, they bid three times, right? So if I don't want to get into a bidding war, then I don't bid three times. And, and the round number was pretty similar as well. So I think, yeah, look, I mean, I think the final offer probably would have been slightly more desirable for Shakhtar, the player, the agents, all of that kind of thing, for sure. I mean, you know, if you're going to a club that's 10th in the table compared to a club that's top of the table, eight points clear, that's looking a lot more stable, that's been pursuing you for months, where you've been saying on social media, as Mudrick had been, hinting strongly that he wanted to go to Arsenal, clearly certain things would have had to be involved for that mindset to change slightly. But I don't think it's as simple as simply they offered a ton more. It wasn't like that. Um, the length of the contract has obviously raised eyebrows, and it is something that we're becoming accustomed to under under this ownership that, that players get long deals. Presumably, that's something to do with with FFP and amortisation and, and all these words. I don't really understand. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the idea is the longer the contract is, the more easy it is to spread those payments over a long amount of time. The, the optimistic view is, well, you've signed a player that's, what, 20, 21, 22 years old, and you've got him until he's 30 on a contract you know, that he's signed when he's 21, 22, so the salary will be lower than it might otherwise be. Um, so you've done really well to persuade him to do that. The flip side of it is football doesn't really work like that because 
if Mikhailo Mudrik goes and scores 15 goals next season, 25 goals the year after, 30 goals the year after, he'll want a new contract because he'll have a load of clubs interested in him. That's the way that football works and Chelsea will have to give him far more money. So the idea that someone who Chelsea think could be potentially the best left winger in the world is just going to sit on the contract that he's signed when he's 22 for eight and a half years seems to me to be pretty unrealistic. And it is one of those things where it's like, well, if this is so clever, why are only Chelsea doing it? You know, is is it really sort of a revolutionary Todd Bowley, Egbali idea, or is it actually just not quite as bright and innovative as they think it is? Maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. We'll see. But clearly, the strategy of Chelsea at the moment is to identify the the, the best young players on the market, sign them, get them on long term deals. You know, with a, a manager that they think is well suited to young talented players, and and, and see and see where it takes them. But I mean. You would think at some point there has to be a limit to how much Chelsea can can continue to spend. I mean, they're still talking now about midfielders, about right backs. They probably need a goalkeeper in the summer, maybe, as well. So we'll talk about a centre forward. And I mean, they've got so many strikers or forward players on their books now, whether they're at the club or on loan or loaned in. And the problem is the more that you sign, the harder it is to recoup value because everyone knows that you need to get them off the books. So, I don't know. There's, there's there's moments where I think Chelsea's owners are hugely innovative. There's other times where it's like, are they making it up as they go along a little bit? Mm, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. In terms of Mudrick, Simon, you've written about him as well. And, and in particular, this, the significance of, of him being a player that Graham Potter wants. A lot of people this morning picking up on the quotes that, that Potter said after the, after the game against Crystal Palace about not signing too many players. But it sounds like this is one that he was keen on bringing it. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was I was told that sort of over a week ago, so it's not like a PR kind of line to put out there. Um, now the deal's done. Oh yeah, the manager always wanted him, and of course, wasn't helped, of course, by something he said post match yesterday, where he said, "Oh, I, I, well, I don't know how it happened," sort of thing. Um, but trust. <laughs> but then you know we're all like that sometimes, aren't we? Um, but. No, I am told that he, he really likes him and, and really wants him. Um, now, now of course, and that's why I wrote a column saying that, and I think it is a big sort of show of support um, from the owners that, you know, in their, all this talk about is Potter's job on the line. Well, signing a player the coach wants is, is a pretty strong indication, I think, that he's not going anywhere. Although I think Adam's probably flagged that there's, there's an element of, of uh, well, you know the club sort of do things as, as they want anyway, but um, and unusual things. But I, I I I do think it's a good thing. The, the question for Potter though is where does he fit in? Where does he work? I know he's left wing, but you know Chelsea have so many players in that position already. But he will give an injection to that attack, and hopefully he doesn't get sent off in his first game. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, you've seen a fair bit of him this season for Shakhtar in the Champions League, right? What what can Chelsea fans expect from from Mudrik, the player? I'd say the exciting bit is he's one of the fastest players I've ever seen. He's one of the players that I don't get that excited watching football football live, which is really good for a football journalist. Um, but <laughs> he he is pretty he's pretty exciting. You know, it's over the first five or ten yards, he is extraordinarily fast. Really powerful shot, gives good width in terms of he will keep his width, but he'll also run inside a a kind of a right back and go in behind and stretch the play. His crossing's okay. 
not always great going the other way in terms of the diligence. And also there's been times I've watched him and I thought, I'm not sure you're a 90 minutes player yet. And so you can sort of do a good hour, 75 minutes, but then kind of tails off a little bit, starts pulling up, um, looking to the bench slightly. He's very raw. I mean, he's, I think he's played eight times for his national team. He's not played that many games even for Shakhtar Donetsk. I mean, that's kind of the way football works now. People get very, very excited very quickly about young, talented, attacking players. I, I understand that. I, I do think, and I'd, said, I'd have said this, if Chelsea did the deal, if Arsenal did the deal, I think the price is is hugely inflated for what he's demonstrated so far. That doesn't mean I don't think he's a really talented player. I think what you might get is a situation a bit like Manchester United with Anthony, where actually in terms of his age and the league where he's come from, his performances are okay, but the gap between the expectations and the price tag might make things really difficult. And that becomes even more difficult at Chelsea if results aren't good, because people then start to look at you like, well, what have we gone and done this for when we needed X, Y, Z? So that's that's why I worry for him, for him slightly. I think it might have suited him better as a personality to go into a team and a club where the team's winning top of the league, the manager's very, very secure as Mikel Arteta is, that where he would fit in Arsenal's system, although he'd be competing with Martinelli, I think was very, very clear. So I think those are some of the the, the reservations, but he's, he's, he's a really exciting player. And if Chelsea fans get a chance to go and watch back the game that he played away at Leipzig or, or against Celtic home and away, he, he was sensational. The, the other side is, Liam and Sile know better than me, but to me, Graham Potter's a manager that wants to play in possession and break teams down. And this is a player who's very, very well suited to playing on transition on the counter-attack with big spaces to exploit. I've not really seen him in a situation where he's had to really unlock a defence because the way that Shakhtar were playing in the Champions League was defending very, very deep and then springing on the counter. And that's not going to be Chelsea's game plan under Graham Potter. So... There's excitement, reservations, and then just that expectation gap with the transfer fee. Uh, yeah, there were similar issues with uh, Timo Werner, Romelu Lukaku. Chelsea have made a little bit of a, a, a business of signing kind of high-level transition attackers to play <laughs> slow possession build-up football. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Adam, just to follow up on on Mudrik, the personality um, I know you had a lot of conversations about him in the making of your excellent podcast series Away From Home. From the impression you get of, of him as a person, how do you think he's going to adapt to English football, the challenge of, of, of suddenly being a big player with a big price tag at, at a huge European club? I think there's an ego, for better and worse, for sure. He He's someone who wanted a transfer this month and he wanted a big transfer wasn't shy about saying that. Shakhtar have had issues with him previously. Before Roberto De Zerbi, now Brighton manager, was at the club, I think two consecutive Shakhtar managers brought him up from the from the youth teams, had him training with the first team and then actually sent him back because the attitude and the application wasn't quite what, what they wanted it to be. And then De Zerbi came into the club and, and he basically told Dario Cerna, the sporting director, and Mudrik, you know, either you're going to be a player under me or you're not going to be a player at at all. And that was kind of the flip point um, in Mudrick's career. And over the past 18 months or so, the development has been pretty sensational in terms of the, the speed of that development. People at the club talk about it. And I know everyone says this about anyone who's talented, but they do say things like he stayed after training for hours, kicking the ball, all that sort of stuff, practicing, etc. Um, 
in terms of personality and sort of fitting in at Chelsea, look, it's going to be a challenge to, you know, the situation he's been playing in over the last eight months or so, I think tells you quite a lot about his resilience in terms of Shakhtar being playing against the backdrop of a war driving in and out of Ukraine pretty regularly on really long bus journeys, you know, a lot of time away from family, worrying about family. And he's he's kind of, from a football point of view, he's thrived in that environment, in a highly challenging uh, personal, professional environment. So I think that tells you something about, you know, the character that he has, um, which Chelsea fans, I think, should take should take confidence from. Um but it's still going to be a big, big, big challenge for him to transition into all of a sudden not being the main star of a team because he won't be the only star at Chelsea. There's a lot of really talented players. And also not he won't have a whole club constantly talking about him in the way that Shakhtar have been for the past six months. I mean, I just said this on the Athletic Football Podcast, but I actually think what's happened with Mudrick is almost like one of football's great marketing projects. It was like, if you say something often enough, people will really start to believe that he's worth 100 million euros and will really start to believe that, as Dario Cerna said, probably about 10 times in different interviews, this guy is only behind uh, Mbappe and Vinicius Jr. in terms of the wide left forward positions. Maybe that's his real view, but it was almost like it was a line to take from the club. And then it became, well, look what Anthony was worth. Look what Grealish was worth. Look what Sancho was worth. Look what our guy's done in the Champions League. And the, the the consistency in this strategy and how and how often Shakhtar were prepared to go on the record to talk about it was a really deliberate strategy to create to create the market, which obviously Arsenal were heavily into, and then Chelsea came into as well. And then once you've got a bidder in the auction who is, yeah, with all due respect, Chelsea kind of struggling and a bit desperate and has a lot of money to spend, it put Shakhtar in this really really strong position. So I, I don't mean to. I don't intend this to put down either Mudrick or Chelsea because I think it could be a really great move for both of them. But it's definitely, it's, it's just definitely over the odds. I mean, look at what Liverpool paid for Cody Gakpo, right, about two two or three weeks ago. And Shakhtar managed to sort... I thought that might become an argument in the same way as Anthony Sancho Grealish became an argument in Shakhtar's favour. I thought, well, Liverpool only paid, what was it, 37 million for Gakpo. So why should we pay triple that almost for for Mudrick, who's probably achieved less. He's not been to a World Cup, right? So, yeah, really fascinating to see how he gets on. Sorry for that really long answer. No, no, we really appreciate your, your time and your insight this morning, but I want you to help me out with one more thing before I let you go. Um, he's got a tattoo on his neck which says, talent ain't enough, but there's a line struck through the word talent. Does that mean that talent is enough or talent ain't enough? <laughs> Uh, you'll have to ask him to find out because I'm not sure. <laughs> He's got quite a few tattoos. Um, I can't remember them all off the top of my head. There seems to be like another tattoo emerge with every Champions League goal that he scored. Um, but look, I mean, this is what I mean. Like, he's got personality, there's ego, definitely enjoyed the kind of social media attention that came with, you know, all the speculation. He's also incredibly driven. I mean, he speaks to people at Shakhtar and they will tell you, you know, he wants to win the Ballon d'Or. And they're not just, that isn't just something that people were saying. It is, this is an individual player, a little bit, not saying he's anywhere near Cristiano Ronaldo's level, but in terms of that mindset and personality of very, very driven by individual awards and individual development, you know, spent a huge amount of time with a personal trainer over the past year or so as well. He's really, you know, if you look at a picture of him from now compared to 18 months ago, the physical transformation, 
hasn't been too dissimilar to if you remember like when Gareth Bale all of a sudden went from being quite scrawny to really bulking up as well. He's clearly had that mindset. I mean, some people were a bit concerned. They were saying, you know, if he bulks up too much, then you lose that explosivity. But, you know, clearly it's taken taken him to, to a to a really good place. So like, I think he's I think he's got the personality to to thrive in it, but there are just those reservations. Then there's also just we just don't know what Chelsea are going to be in the next few weeks, months, years. There's just so many questions hovering over what Chelsea want to be. Like, what is? I mean, there's a tweet from Daily Telegraph's Matt Law yesterday, just listing all these forward players that Chelsea have contracted to the club in some way, shape, or form. Like twelve, thirteen of them almost. You know, when you look at Broya, Lukaku, Hudson Adoy. Felix, Pulisic, Sterling, or Bamiang. It's just, I mean, it's incredible. And where do they all fit in? What's the plan for them all long term? What do the club want to do with them? Uh, so, in some ways, really exciting. In other ways, it's just like, what are Chelsea going to do next? Yeah, and that pretty much encapsulates Chelsea Football Club nicely. Um, Adam, <laughs> thanks so much for your time today. We'll catch up with you again soon. Pleasure. See you soon, guys. Adam Crafton there, read him only in The Athletic. Okay, next today we'll talk about the return of the WSL. Still time for Chelsea. And that's a good ball. Car! Of course it's Car! A crucial late equaliser for Chelsea. No question marks about that front line now. Their key forward coming up trumps late in the day and a big goal for the Blues. Chelsea were back in WSL action this weekend. They took on Arsenal in front of more than 45,000 at the Emirates. Some of them actually got to see the full 90 minutes. Here's Jesse Parker-Humphreys who could tell us how they got on. Obviously, in any game that demands huge amounts of narrative, the inevitable outcome is a draw, leaving everyone standing exactly where they were before the game. But yes, Chelsea drew 1-1 with Arsenal at the Emirates. Sam Kerr coming up with the goods, an 89th minute headed winner, which was a very good feeling, to be honest. I feel like in the cold light of Monday morning, I'm still trying to assess where that result leaves Chelsea, but obviously leaving the Emirates yesterday, it was hard not to feel just elated that we'd stopped Arsenal getting the win. Uh, I think Arsenal probably did play better, although the penalty they scored from was just not a penalty. Uh, but from open play, they definitely created more chances than Chelsea. They looked more threatening than Chelsea. And for large portions of the game, Chelsea just really, really struggled to to play out from their own half. I think... This is a bit of a theme and I don't really know how how Chelsea fixed this, but, you know, coming back from breaks and just not looking quite at the level they were before before they went away. Um, there were kind of some notable absentees. Frank Kirby wasn't quite fit enough to start. Um, and I think obviously that meant our midfield was a lot less creative with Jesse Fleming and Aaron Cuthbert in there. Equally, it was a bit of a tough day at the office for Neve Charles. A great vote of confidence for her from Emma Hayes to play her at right back, but she really, really struggled with Caitlin Ford. Um, Chelsea did grow into the game, but it wasn't until Hayes made her substitutes that I think really changed it. Chelsea kind of went into this 
hybrid back three, e.g. no defence, just vibes, um, putting Yelena Kankovic on, bringing Frank Herbie on, um, bringing Eve Perisay on, and Perisay and Kankovic in particular just totally changed the game with their kind of quality and creativity. And it definitely felt like when the goal came, it wasn't necessarily a surprise, even though Chelsea hadn't created a whole host of amazing opportunities. Um, equally, it felt like it was reasonable for them to get a goal back. Uh, special mention to Lauren James, who just absolutely was incredible in the first half, even as everyone around her looked like they were panicking. You know, I was sat next to Arsenal fans who were just kind of open-mouthed at how talented she is. So she she really continues to shine. And yeah, it kind of leaves Chelsea and Arsenal exactly where they were. Uh, Chelsea's still three points ahead, having played a game more. I think they will be the happier with the draw because Arsenal's fixture list in the second half of the season is a lot trickier than Chelsea's. Arsenal still have to play City twice, United and Chelsea again. Um, whereas Chelsea now just have those, those three fixtures against City, United and Arsenal to run through. And now uh, Chelsea look ahead to avenge their only defeat of the season uh, on Sunday when Liverpool visit Kings Meadow. Lovely stuff, Jesse. As Jesse says, it's as you were in the WSL table. Chelsea having played a game more, but with a three-point lead over both Arsenal and Man United. United actually second after they thumped Liverpool this weekend. Uh, here's a tweet from Opta Joe. Sam Kerr has scored 48 goals in 57 appearances in the WSL. Ten more than any other player since she debuted in January 2020. Today was her 17th headed goal in the competition, putting her joint top all time for headed goals in the league with Bethany England. Um, Liam, that's a great stat, but I thought the, the underrated Chelsea moment of the weekend was her wheeling away in celebration, cupping her ear to the Arsenal fans and giving it a bit of that. I mean, she is rapidly becoming, if not already, a Chelsea legend. And goodness me, she loves a goal against Arsenal. The Haaland of the WSL. <laughs> that's what it seems like. She's... Um... It says a lot that we've just kind of come to expect this from from Sam Kerr now after her struggling really in the early months of her Chelsea career when she first made that move. Um, she just played at such a consistently high level, and I, I know she won the you know the Footballer of the Year award last season. I was at the FWA dinner when she was when she was presented with it. Um, and then the very next day, she went out and scored two spectacular goals to pretty much rubber stamp Chelsea's title win. So she's she's consistently proven herself to be someone for the big occasion. She's obviously got that mischievous streak as well as as the ear cupping highlighted. But she's she's exactly the type of talismanic striker that that, that Chelsea want, and it, and it says a lot that you know she's she's managed to take this role and 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 put Chelsea in a position where they felt they could sell Beth England, um, who was a very, very capable high-level WSL goal scorer in her own right. But she, she's made her unnecessary at Chelsea, which is pretty remarkable. Talk about sporting genes. This is Sam Kerr's family history. Her mother's dad and his brothers were professional footballers in the West Australian Football League. Another uncle, John J.J. Miller, won the 1966 Melbourne Cup on a horse called Galilee. Her paternal grandfather was a featherweight boxer for Bengal and her grandmother of Indian descent played basketball. Her father, Roger, and older brother, Daniel, both played professional Aussie rules football, which was also Kerr's first love until an anterior cruciate ligament injury at the age of 18, which pushed her into football. I mean, that is... 
just a phenomenal <laughs> sporting family story. And Chelsea are very, very, very grateful that she made the switch uh, to our game and to Chelsea in particular. All right, on Friday night, the under-21s picked up their second 2-0 win of the week in PL2. Goals from Mason Burstow and Dion Rankin gave Mark Robinson's team a 2-0 win at Kings Meadow to lift them up to second in the table, just a point behind leaders Man City, albeit having played a game more. Uh, even better... For the under-18s on Saturday, they wallop Norwich 7-1 away from home. Braces for Danell McNeely, Lewis Flower and Leo Cardoso, who was making his first start. It was actually an understrength team because a lot of the players were away on international duty. Uh, the under-18s in FA Youth Cup fourth round action at Cambridge on Thursday night. All right, that's just about going to do it for us today. Uh, Simon, I enjoyed yours and Liam's big joint read on what's going on at Chelsea at the moment. Give us a little plug for that and anything else you're working on, please. Yeah, so basically me and Liam combined to write a piece about what's going on at Chelsea. Mm. <laughs> I mean, no, there's, there's obviously a lot of explaining about not just Potter's position, but how the players view Potter, perhaps how the players are feeling about what's going on at the moment. Outside of views of of their impression of, of dealing with the owners and the new recruitment team, um, it, it's, it's very thorough, or we like to think it's very thorough. So it's well worth checking out, although some of the crisis kind of element is taken away by that mighty three points to uh, cement their place in 10th spot. And then in terms of what I'm working on, I'm doing a big joint read, inevitably, on the Mudrick signing, which uh, there's a few of us that have combined forces to, uh, to sort of give the lowdown on, on how Chelsea have ended up winning the race for him. Um, and I'm also interviewing Mark Robinson. You sort of teed me up there, Matt. So that will come up hopefully later in the week. But uh, the man that has effectively led Chelsea from near the bottom of the PL2 to the top in uh, the space of just uh, five months. Excellent. How about you, Liam? I'm also on Mudrick duty, doing more of a kind of Y-Scout piece on on what he can specifically bring to Chelsea. I and mean, there was a more general piece a while back on what makes Mudrick good, you know, what what is he as a, as a player, which I think Adam Crafton contributed to. Um, this is going to be more Chelsea-focused in terms of what he brings versus what Chelsea do. How, how well that fits, whether he can actually change Chelsea's attack in positive ways. So those will be all of the questions I'll be trying to address in that piece. And then at the weekend, I'm going up to Anfield for the first time in my football journalism career, um, hopefully to see Mudrik make his debut and, and hopefully to see a competitive performance unlike my journey to Manchester Oh, do Chelsea go into that game as the favourites now? I wonder. And plenty of build-up across the Athletic to that game. We'll be back on Thursday with another show. Very grateful to Adam Crafton and to Jesse for their contributions to the show today and to Simon and Liam and producer Lucy, of course. But mainly to you for listening. We'll catch up with you later in the week. Bye for now. The Athletic.